we need to stop pointing fingers at each other and really figuring out what the problem is. In this episode, we will ask questions that you probably have been thinking about and wanting to ask your OT or ABA on the team. You know the questions I'm referring to, the ones you're so afraid to say out loud. We are actually going to do that for you. We're going to share a list, a list of types of questions you can ask an ABA or an OT to start the conversation on the right foot. And the fun part is uh, Mandy and I are going to role play a case example of how we started the collaboration. And to the behavioralists out there, get prepared to leave this episode with information that might add to your practice and possibly leave the door open for allowing you to contribute to OT programs for your clients with what you know of how to measure behavior and demonstrate improvement. Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones, from two cultures and two allied health fields, offering two very different perspectives. Yet with a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Well, hello everyone, OTs, ABAs, OTAs, RBTs, COTAs, student educators, and above all, collaborators. Welcome to our second episode of Why Can't We Be Friends? In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the why. Last episode, we shared our stories with you of how we actually came together, despite our very differentiating principles. So to continue on that thought, we're going to tease apart the myths and the various confounding factors of why. Why on earth can't we be friends? Yeah, my why starts with my introduction to working with clinicians Aditi when I was a parent of a child with autism. I became a BCBA three years into my journey as an autism parent. And one of my earliest memories of not being able to be friends with therapists from another field was in a trip to a speech pathologist appointment with my daughter. Back then she was two. She had a very fragile behavioral repertoire and was on what we call as behavioralists a very fixed schedule of reinforcement. In other words, a tiny bit of work to access a break. Back then she had a pretty complex behavioral presentation of self-injury and tantrums. So I remember the speech therapist asking me if it would be possible on this appointment for Juliet to forego her break so that she could get more work done, you know, an admirable goal. But I remember at that time as a parent, not having been down my professional career and less than a year's experience of being dismayed by that suggestion and even back then thinking that she really lacked um, understanding of behaviour management in a field where she worked with populations of, you know, severe behavioural challenge. And I must have been having a bad day that day because I said to her, that's absolutely fine as long as you forego payment for this session. Needless to say, she and I didn't remain friends after that appointment. But since that time, I've developed better communication skills, I think, at being able to express why certain interventions are important. And outside of my grief and anger these days, I think I'm a better collaborator and better at being friends with professionals across different fields. My daughter is also a far more resilient learner and able to tolerate different levels of reinforcement and different levels of training of people that she interacts with. But this is where it all started for me. This is why sometimes it's hard to be friends with professionals from very different underpinnings. Do you have a story, Aditi? Well, the word I want to start with is fluffy. Fluffy (laughs) is the adjective she used to describe OT. 
Yep, you heard me right, like bunny foo-foo fluffy. I was livid. I was so upset, bothered, flustered. I don't know, there are a million adjectives to tell you how I felt. I was like, my gosh, you know, we're based on a hundred-year-old profession on science and research. I just wanted to yell and shout out to her. But, you know, this was nothing new, Mandy. I had heard these remarks over and over again. They were so disparaging, and I just sort of ignored them. Thoughts and comments like OTs just play with kids. They're all about brushing and swinging. Oh, and the list of name-calling and stereotypes just sort of goes on. So these comments, I think, are exactly what contributes to the why of why we can't be friends. It contributes to divide within our field, and it's really based on a sea of misunderstandings. Don't you think, Mandy? Yeah, I agree with that. But, you know, rather than ganging on each other, the secret is to gang up on the problem. That was a quote by Thomas Stolkamp that I heard, and I thought, yes, that's right. We need to stop pointing fingers at each other and really figuring out what the problem is. So in this episode, we will ask questions that you probably have been thinking about and wanting to ask your OT or ABA on the team. You know the questions I'm referring to, the ones you're so afraid to say out loud. We are actually going to do that for you. We will unravel the sea of myths, sullying both our fields, discuss unique perspectives as we look through both lenses of OT and ABA. And lastly, we're going to share a list a list of types of questions you can ask an ABA or an OT to start the conversation on the right foot. And the fun part is uh, Mandy and I are going to role play a case example of how we started the collaboration process, what sort of questions we asked each other, and this will all be available in the show notes too. Our ABA and OT icebreaker, this resource will be available and I think it's really going to help you guys bridge the gap between each other and start collaboration. Great. And to the behavioralists out there, get prepared to leave this episode with information that might add to your practice and possibly leave the door open for allowing you to contribute to OT programs for your clients with what you know of how to measure behavior and demonstrate improvement. So Aditi, let's get to our weekly shout out. This week, our shout out goes to Dr. Jose Martinez-Diaz, who sadly passed away this week. Dr. Madness Diaz was the Associate Dean of Psychology and the Head of Behaviour Analysis at Florida Institute of Technology, and just amongst his extraordinary achievements in the field of applied behaviour analysis. His influence went throughout the world, including reaching many of us known US citizens who were impacted by his online programs. My most vivid memory of uh, the time I spent listening to Dr. Martinez was his story of Andy and the Wad of Paper that many people Oh, at least many behavioralists out there will know. This was a real life story of a teenager who he programmed for, whose life was profoundly impacted by an error in interpretation in Andy's behavior plan. Andy knew those operational definitions better than many of the staff that he worked with, and certainly better than the therapist that Dr. Martinez recounts in that story. And that misunderstanding evoked an act of aggression and a throwing of a wad of paper, which is the at the heart of that story. After Andy lost access to seeing his father for what I think was six months for throwing that wad of paper, uh, which Andy said should have been excluded as roughhousing in that behavioural definition of aggression, 
and Andy got, uh, yeah, in a lot of trouble for aggression because he was waiting to see his father and he was due to see his father that day. I believe his father was waiting outside to see him. So in that story that you can see on YouTube, you'll see Dr. Martinez at his most emotional. He sobs as he recounts that story. And for me, that left a lasting impact as a behaviour analyst on the care with which we have to operate in our field, that we have people's lives hanging in the balance. And um, to this day, when I'm drafting definitions of behaviour, I think back to that story and back to him and his passion for the clients that he, clients and students that he worked with and he'll be deeply missed. Oh my goodness, that was a harrowing story. I do remember that actually. So he was one of my AB instructors at um, FIT and he was so brilliantly passionate, I do remember, and truly a formidable teacher. Definitely a great loss indeed. So Aditi, as behavior analysts and OTs, we work in a variety of care fields Tell us a little bit of where OTs practice. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me because I I do feel like people don't know. They sort of pigeonhole us into sensory and that's not even, you know, an iota of what we do. So OTs are undoubtedly probably more ubiquitous in the playing field and, you know, in the therapy world compared to ABA. Um, We're in the NICU, EI, inpatient, outpatient, skilled nursing facilities, hand therapy, mental health units, even in the prison setting, believe it or not, and of course in schools. So schools and outpatient rehab are probably where most ABA therapists encounter OTs. And I do believe this is where our worlds sort of collide, especially when working with students with autism. So I do think this contributes to this very myopic perspective of OT for most behavior therapists, because you really only see us with autism clients. So we may see the same client, but we tend to have very different lens. And so this is not only guided by the time frame of intervention, but it's also our whole process of solving a problem. So let me give you an example. So let's say we both have a client, you know, Johnny, and his goal is handwriting. He has autism. He has, and you're seeing him, I'm seeing him. So as an OT, I typically see him 15 to 20 minutes in a school setting, maybe 30 minutes to an hour a week in an outpatient clinic. But my mindset's a little more urgent, I guess, is like I want him to participate. I'm going to work really hard to problem solve. How can we get participation as soon as possible? And typically I will look at accommodations, adaptations, you know, pencil grip, slant board, all those, these tools to see, can I get Johnny participating in handwriting in whatever shape or format ASAP? Because I know 15, 20 minutes a week or even 30 to 60 minutes a week is not going to change the skill level. Because in OT, we depend a lot on follow through with the parent and the teacher to do all the practicing. So it's really simply economics. The time we have is very different than the time you are allocated. And I think that's maybe partly where judgments start to percolate. What do you think? My major experience in collaborating with OTs and understanding funding models was when I lived in the US for a year, and that was during Obamacare. So I'm by no means an expert on service allocation, at least in the, in the States. But 
there have been significant studies in our field that says that, you know, intensive early intervention in the field of autism is effective when it reaches a certain prescriptive level, for instance, 30 hours a week for two to three years, uh, incorporating applied behaviour analysis. And, you know, this has been shown in the literature to produce meaningful and lasting change. So, yes, we definitely look at models that incorporate more hours. I guess more recently in Australia, we have a new government insurance scheme here called the NDIS, and that can afford some children significant funding for behavioural intervention as well, as well as occupational therapy, but generally the funding models are different. So for most behaviour analysts, unless they're working in the mainstream with mainstream children with lesser challenges, the thought of only seeing a student once a week for a few minutes is unthinkable to us unless of course as you say the home environment can be constructed to facilitate a lot of practice with feedback. Well I think feedback is one of the challenges too like I could send a home program with mum for handwriting but I do think that's where there's a little limitation with home programs is if the child's not getting the right feedback they may not be motivated and therefore again hindrance in progress. So I do think that's that could be a confounding factor. But let's start with discussing the not-so-pleasant adjectives that I'm sure you all have heard. I know I have. Arrogant, lazy, manipulative, not data-driven, robotic, (laughs) too harsh, rigid, too relaxed. These are just a few comments that I've heard collectively over the past few years. And as we all know, these negative perceptions can be very corrosive to both our fields. So I really wanted to start the conversation there. Where does this barrier originate? Because you know what? We have the same goal. Both of us want to just help people. And I do think there's several myths and misunderstandings that sort of lead to this issue between us. So today, I think we're going to try to unravel some of these myths. Let's start with the first one. Myth number one is our guiding principles and theories are vastly different. But I question that. Are they really? So a recent article that I read, 2019 article by Whitting and Muirhead, ABA and OT. I really, really like this article. It talks specifically about uh, interprofessional collaboration between ABA and OT and truly is a great resource if any of you are interested in looking at it. It talks about a lot of areas that we have some commonalities and there's a really great narrative on it. So some of you may already know this, but OT is a combination of a lot of theories. And that's why we have this sort of holistic perspective, right? And one of the uh, theories that we imbibe is the model of human occupation, which actually has similarities to the assumptions in the behavior analytic intervention. It's all about client-centered approach, motivation is the focal point, and we use preference assessments that are definitely incorporated. And it actually borrows from the theory of motor learning, which is based on skills can be learned, and then these skills can then become more automatic through practice and feedback. That sounds very ABA-ish to me, doesn't it, Mandy? Yeah, it does. I guess, you know, it could be said for any health services field that the overall goal is to improve the quality of an individual's life. And so, yeah, that's has to be a basis of similarity between fields where we're working with people with challenge. You know, how to reduce behaviours that get in the way of leading a socially meaningful life, whatever that be for that individual. 
address those behaviors. And then, you know, what we would say is teach functionally similar or alternative behaviors that promote socially meaningful behavior again for that individual. So yeah, when we break it down to that overall goal, yeah, there's a lot of similarity between our fields. Perhaps where we as behavior analysts get stuck in collaborating with other professionals like occupational therapists is what might appear to be logical or even likely doesn't make it true. And we care about truth. Truth and proof and evidence in our field is based on measurement. And this is what underpins our science. And that we can demonstrate that something caused something else not just that it appears to be causing it. And this is where behaviorists get stuck with some of the fields that they interact with is, you know, assumptions that one thing is causing another. Oh my goodness. Do you think that's where, I hate to say it, but I'm going to, some of that arrogance might appear, which is sort of our myth number two, right? The therapeutic world feels that there's this notion that ABAs can think they can fix everything and they don't really need anybody else. They don't need our help. So I don't know if you've heard of that, Mandy, but I certainly have being an OT. Yeah. You know, we're not any therapist, whether it's ABA or OT, speech therapy, anyone. I'm sure you've encountered the ones who are arrogant versus humble. Um, you know, no therapists are created equal. No two therapists are created equal. So there is this arrogance, and I think it creates a real barrier between the two fields and collaboration. And while I don't refute that ABA has some amazing interventions to support their outcomes, you know, this arrogance really becomes a bit like kryptonite for friendship. So for obvious reasons, and also because ABA compared to OT or speech therapy or PT even, you know, it's not like you're comparing apples to apples because... Again, it comes back to how often you guys see a client versus I see them. So we end up comparing two different dimensions of time. And so it's no doubt that OTs get a little defensive, right? Like sometimes there's a comment, and I've heard this, where Johnny's behavior therapist taught Johnny to tie his shoes in three weeks, but the OT has been working on it for the past month. And the OT's perspective is, gosh, well, I could teach him in three weeks if I saw him three. I only see him for, you know, 30 minutes a week or something. So I think behavior therapists do have an advantage of frequency and frequent practice is built into their treatment plan, whereas OT once again rely on caregiver practice to really support the outcomes. So does that make sense of why arrogance might be felt yeah, I guess, um, Aditi, you know, I've dealt with a, a large number of professionals now in my 16-year journey, and I guess the ones that I still take consult are from those that don't show arrogance in the interaction and tend to use plain English to describe our science. And, you know, in life in general, I think I tend to gravitate towards people that listen and uh, take another person's perspective. But I agree that there are a lot of people in our field that are very passionate about what our science brings to uh, human behavior. And, you know, on that note, on myth number two, I think the reason that that myth exists is because behavior analysts work in the endeavor of behavior. And most of what human beings do is behave. 
you know, we work in fields where behaviours are missing or excessive. I agree, though, that it is a myth that behaviour analysts think they can treat all behaviour because, you know, behaviour presents across language, academics, cognition, uh, from addictions, you know, habits and habit reversal, depression and anxiety, behaviour in the workplace. And so there are very specific experience requirements needed to address those types of behaviour. So it's a myth because, in fact, behaviour analysts with their interactions with their own governing bodies are required to refer out to experts in specific areas where it goes beyond their area of practice. So you'll find behaviour analysts working specifically in autism early intervention or in youth challenges, addiction. There's a lot of application to um, schizophrenia or specific mental challenges, uh, eating disorders, sleeping disorders, medical complications, parent training, for instance, counselling, etc. So it is a myth to say that behaviour analysts can address all behaviours. They will tend to focus on an area of specialisation. And it's very common for us as behaviour analysts to refer outside of our area of expertise. But this does lead me to another myth that I often hear from parents and professionals. Myth number three we're calling it in this episode, and that is behavioural intervention results in teaching robotic skills that don't generalise outside of the teaching environment. And um, this is, in my view, a, a large misunderstanding of what applied behaviour analysis is because ABA is the science of identifying you know, socially meaningful behaviours for human beings to be taught and to address the function of behavioural excesses competing with those goals. So saying that ABA causes robots is like saying that your general practitioner causes heart failure or something similar. You know, poor application of the science of medicine might misdiagnose or prevent recovery from heart failure just like the poor application of behavioural science might prevent skills from showing up where they are needed. But this is due to poor programming, poor performance on the clinician and insufficient practice opportunities, not, not a failing of the science itself. The science itself rests on one of its fundamental dimensions and that is generalisation of skills outside of the teaching environments. And this must be programmed for every program that professes to call itself an ABA program will incorporate specific methodologies to ensure this is occurring, or at least they should. That being said, though, I have seen many programs that did not incorporate sufficient practices opportunities or multiple exemplar training is what we call it, nor generalisation strategies such that children only learn skills in very limited ways. For instance, only requesting something with one carrier phrase and always using that way or using rote language, being able to identify, say, the colour red but not shades of red, you know, being able to read in one font but not in, you know, a variety of fonts. But this is poor programming and not, you know, the science itself because good programming will require probes into behaviours that you want to show up in an environment where the children needs to use them or what we would call in our field application checks. So this is a, a definite myth. <laughs> you can hear my passion for it. It's not the science but the application of that science that results in um, robotic behaviour. And how about Aditi, some behavioralist view that OTs do not measure or take data. What about that myth? Can you respond to that one? 
Reluctantly, but I will. Uh, myth number four. Yes, OTs don't take evidence or data, don't base anything on evidence. I think there's a huge mismatch there of what we sort of consider data, right? What you consider it and what I do. Given the time frame, the frequency of achieving goals, OTs, like we will typically start with a standardized assessment. So I'll do that to determine what sort of skill deficits I'm looking at and how it impacts participation. Now, I'll establish some goals using that information to be addressed typically around six, over six months, right? So again, let's look at Johnny and Shutang. So based on his baseline skill level, his long-term six-month goal might be he has to learn to tie shoes independently. But I do have these one to two short-term benchmark goals that I might be doing, and that I would take data on on a monthly basis at least, and qualitative information every session. So I do think there's a very big contrast in what you consider data and what I do. But I think this is where measurement is definitely less frequent and it's based more on a broader skill. I think what I've seen with ABA is a behavior therapist provide a more pinpointed, very precise uh, measurement system, which we in OT can definitely learn and benefit from. But yes, I do think this data is a huge divide. So I think you're right, Aditi, data is something that divides our two fields. And yes, I think what underpins it is the very specific definitions that we as behavior analysts use on what we call small slices of behavior or little components, and that we measure improvement on those little components. And so, yeah, I think this is what creates divide in our field. We make decisions based on data that unfolds session by session. And I do think, without trying to be arrogant, this is an area where behavior analysts do have something to offer people, and that is how to define and measure behavior to show improvement and to determine mastery of a skill that will later show up in other environments, in other goals, and I'm looking forward down the track, Aditi, to having more podcasts on what measurement and data can bring to other fields. So I'm excited for that going forward. How about you? Yes, I think that's definitely a goal that I've always had in mind. I do think OTs can do better with data, even though we have a different time frame that we work in. There's a huge push in OT to take data. So I'm looking forward to your help too. But I do want to talk about the elephant in the room, Mm -hmm. dare I say it, (laughs) myth number five. OTs are all about sensory. Eek, this really makes me cringe because we do so much. But I do hope all of you know by now that OTs are a lot more than just swings and scooter boards. And if you don't, I really don't blame you. You know, it's okay. I get it. I get it. You have seen us in the realm of autism mainly. And OTs are the ones who first sort of hypothesized the sensory system and really gave it a voice in the medical community. And initially it was sort of overlooked, right? For a few years, like people thought we were nutty because we were talking about sensory issues. But then it sort of took off and became this mainstream catch-all diagnosis or issue with kids, 
specifically for autism. So once people were exposed to this sensory notion and it might impact a child, they went from a nothing to everything approach. And I do feel that it's become sort of this catch-all route for all problems. So, you know, if a child's having difficulty sitting or not paying attention, every it's always it's sensory, it's sensory. And it may be, but it may not. And that's what I think OTs have started recognizing too. Sometimes it's just be a behavioral issue. It's not a sensory need or an OT issue. So now in the US, OTs are becoming a lot more cognizant of behavior and not just sitting there blindly and saying, okay, it's sensory and that's it. I've noticed this trend in the last two, three years where OTs are looking into that facet. And as you know, I'm Mandy, I'm a OT professor at a college. And even within my students, they're already questioning, going, okay, well, how do we know it's sensory behavior? So I do think it's changing. OTs are also taking ABC data, which is another great addition from the ABA field. So we definitely recognize the value of that distinction. And no, 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 we are not all about sensory. And I'm proud to say that OTs are making a gallant effort to look at behavior too. Have you seen that, that OTs are actually looking at behavior? I know you work with Maya, right? Does she, has she uh, expressed that to you too? So Maya is the OT that works for me now. And the reason that she came to join me was exactly that reason. And that is that some of her sessions were spent chasing children around rooms and no amount of sensory input was changing their ability to sit and engage with her through through her sessions. So definitely the behavioral the uh, the occupational therapist that I am now working closely with wants to learn more about behavior, about data, about measurement, and I'm excited about our collaboration there. So that is my direct experience. I have to say that my history, because I work in autism early intervention, is a lot of sensory interventions but I'm excited about where what (laughs) Maya and I are starting to call behavioral occupational therapy about incorporating the function of behavior why a student is doing something into our practice and sharing more about that going forward. I think that's brilliant I love that behavioral occupational therapy that's that's brilliant that's really putting two fields together putting our heads together but I do want to say While you guys think we're all about sensory, OTs believe that ABA does not consider any sort of intrinsic factors, whether it be psychological, physiological, neurological. That is what the word on the street is about ABA. Yes, Aditi, this is a very common misunderstanding of ABA and not just from OTs, but from cognitive psychologists as well and that is that behavior analysts only look at behavior outside of the skin of a person and most behavior analysts at least what we call radical behavior analysts um, (laughs) take into account both behavior within and outside the skin and I think this misunderstanding comes about in that because behavior analysts care deeply about measurement and some behavior is either impossible or very difficult to measure. So, you know, it looks like we're disregarding it. It's just that we care so much about measurement and improvement that, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to pinpoint what those behaviours are and to measure them. 
Og Lindsley, who is a forefather in our field and a big influence on both of us, Aditi, uh, was an advocate for the use of plain English in his research and his teachings. And he developed something known as the dead person's test. Basically, that test says if a dead person can do it, it's not behavior. And if a dead person cannot do it, it is behavior. So this is a simple test that I teach to all of the teams that I work with. Basically, anything a dead person can't do is behavior and we care about it. That includes everything from thinking, emotions, urges, things within the skin. And of course, speaking to yourself, also a behavior. So it's just that some of those things are difficult to assess and to measure and therefore difficult to assess response to intervention, but it is possible. And if anyone is interested in reading more about inner behavior, you can look into Abigail Calkin's work on private events. She's an extraordinary woman that has done a lot of work in this field and will show you that as behavioralists, we definitely don't just look at um, behavior outside the skin and we care about things that you would call intrinsic factors. I always thought that too. Before I went to uh, do my certification in ABA, I thought, wow, this is going to be very linear. And I was quite surprised, actually, because um, as you pointed out, I also noticed there was some credence to automatic behaviors, right, where the, where the child may be seeking some input automatically within their body. And that was considered in ABA. And I thought, wow, so it's not all extrinsic, but it, this is definitely a very common myth that I hear about, as is discrete trial instruction. Um, myth number seven, ABA is all about discrete trial. And of course, LOVAS is the name that comes to mind whenever I mention ABA. Is it still just LOVAS? You know, I came to this field because of my daughter. And, you know, when I first started to learn about behaviorists, when people would refer to ABA, they would often be talking about discrete trial instruction. In other words, one component of ABA and a teaching methodology that has become well known because of research out of UCLA and Dr. Lovas's work in intensive early intervention, predominantly using uh, discrete trial instruction, but also incorporating the science of behavior analysis. But yes, at least unfortunately in this country, the understanding of ABA is seen through repeated uh, discrete trials with young children with autism. And this is not the science of behavior analysis, and this is not applied behavior analysis, but it is a common misunderstanding. It's just, I want to educate everybody, it's just one teaching tool within a large science, just like perhaps a doctor might use dietary intervention or a medication as one tool within his science. But at least in my practice, I do almost no discrete trial instruction. We are precision teachers at Fit Learning. And we incorporate a broader range of measures and different types of intervention in what we do. But I agree that that is a misunderstanding. But please, everybody out there, look beyond discrete trial instruction. And while that is uh, has a lot of evidence to support its effectiveness when it's done well, it isn't the whole science. It's one teaching methodology within the science. Thank you for clarifying that. I mean, so we've gone over about seven myths and you know there are plenty more myths out there and we're happy to talk about them if you'd like to share them with us for sure. 
But I think we get to this point of, okay, I know there's some myths and we've talked about a few and hopefully dispelled a few, but where do we go from here, right? I, I think this is a good start that we both sort of know more about each other's feels, but how do we start that conversation? So I can say to you, you know what, guys, just go have a little chat with your behavior therapist or an OT. But for some people, it may not feel as easy to start a conversation like that because you're worried about disparaging a comment or if it causes tension. And, you know, you're constantly going, is it worth me bringing it up? Is it worth me talking to her about this? These are things that you're probably thinking. And so the first tip I want to give you is about getting comfortable. You have to get really comfortable saying things like, you know, thank you for that idea or tip to the OT or ABA, or I did not realize that, or hmm, I had not thought about it like that, or even go as far to say, you know, I was really wrong about X, Y, and Z, and I've actually changed my mind. Those are words that are really going to inculcate the foundation for collaboration. Now, Mandy and I recognize that it may feel a bit icky, right? And sometimes you can draw blank, like, what am I going to say? Uh, We're supposed to work in this case together, but I don't think she appreciates what I'm doing. I don't know what to offer. I don't know what to say. So we actually came up with a ABA and OT icebreaker to share with you. It's just questions that you can ask both sides of the field. And it's a simple way of just sort of catalyzing the conversation to a positive direction. Now, Mandy and I are going to actually do a little role play to show you how collaboration might look like. And of course, it's going to be different for everyone, but I just want you to really listen to what sort of questions I ask her and vice versa. And hopefully this will help in the practical scenario. So Mandy, can you set the stage for our co-treating client? His name is Sam. He's eight years old. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, and this is based on uh, a student that we are actually collaborating on. So um, let me tell you a little bit more about Sam, not his real name, but he is eight years old. We have been working with him intensively, but he also has some pretty significant funding for occupational therapy. And so I was very motivated to have input into that process and also to learn from that process. So um, he has a diagnosis of autism. He has extreme, or at least he did when he first came to us, extreme and challenging behaviours and particularly behavioural issues around handwriting and holding a pencil. He presents with, you know, what I would say limited fine motor abilities. That is, he has difficulty holding a pencil. He has difficulty tying shoes. His hands, if you uh, pick them up, you know, they can't make a point well. They can't grip objects well. So, you know, he has some fine motor challenges. Yeah, so if you were observing an OT session with Sam, so, you know, a session with me, um, and I would see Sam in the clinic setting, this is exactly what you would see. You would see Sam sitting at the table sometimes. He does wander off a lot, but he'll come sit at the table. We generally start there. And then if I introduce a fine motor activity, he just wanders off. Or he grabs the item and throws it. So I'm just not getting anywhere in therapy, um, any item. Pencils are his favorite item to throw. And he does not tolerate hand-over-hand assistance with me. I did kind of do an occupational profile. 
And so I know he really likes YouTube videos and that's where he really attend and sit and watch. But when the video is off, the iPad turns off, it's, you know, frustration, meltdown mode. And essentially our session is over because he's so upset. I can't get him back into any sort of engagement. So that's what it looks like. How does your session look, uh, Mandy? So yeah, with this particular student, we have had the luxury of working with him now for three school terms. And what you would see is him sitting in a chair, allowing us now to provide hand-over-hand prompting and feedback and direction, tolerating us sitting next to him without engaging in aggression and allowing us to start to engage in fine motor activities with him. The issue we are having is his hand strength and having him hold a pencil at the right angle and with enough force to be able to form letters, make the right sizing and spacing and quality of those letters. And there is what, in a non-technical way, is a lot of wiggling in amongst <laughs> the uh, with the line formation, I would say. Mm-hmm. He's starting to make a nice L, but his T's are wiggly. So why we started to engage on this case is to say, you know, what are the underlying component skills for handwriting that he's missing to assist us to get him to form those letters? So, Aditi, if I asked you that question, you know, how would you answer? What are those component skills of handwriting to assist us to start to improve the quality of what he is producing? Well, what I would tell you first um, is that, you know, motor development actually occurs from a proximal to distal fashion. So we've got to look at his core strength. I mean, assuming he doesn't sit for very long, I'm guessing he doesn't have the endurance. My sessions are very short and I've only seen him for three weeks. So I don't have a lot of information, but just from what you've told me, I think we would want to check his posture and endurance for sitting. That would be the first thing I would do. But then we have so many standardized tests that we can do to look at visual perceptual skills, fine motor coordination, and then working memory skill, you know, all those visual discrimination, all those aspects are component skills that we would need for handwriting. And of course, physiological aspects like hand strength, coordination, and there are actually tools out there that can give us objective data on changing hand strength. So I think I can definitely expose you to some of those. And if it's something you can incorporate into your session, I think it would be a win for both of us. Yeah, absolutely. Because while we now have his behavioral repertoire strong, in other words, he can work for, you know, periods of up to five minutes and, and longer, uh, without engaging in interruptive behavior, he still has what appears to me to be poor core strength. It is extremely effortful for him to pick up and hold a pencil. So I'm excited at what those measures that you have, and I say measures because that's what you're accounting to me. I'm excited that we can measure some of those things and provide interventions and look at response to intervention. And these are measures that I have not been able to incorporate into my practice up to now. So, you know, what are the gross motor components that you were talking about, Aditi? I would look at body posture, endurance, muscle strength, large movement coordination, you know, your gross movement, bilateral coordination. Is he using both sides of his body? Is he using all his digits? Because I know I've seen students 
in the past, and I haven't seen him do as many fine motor activities yet, but sometimes students are not using it, their thumb appropriately or they don't have the stability in the hand to do tasks like handwriting. But we have tools that can really measure that and if we can work together on it, I think that would be priceless because I can't even get him to do anything for me. And it sounds <laughs> like, you know, you've got him at least doing something, which is brilliant. But Mandy, would you be open to another thought here? So when I work with Sam, it's a lot of throwing, right? And now I have to put my OT hat on and give you my thought process when it comes to sensory. I do think, or at least I wonder, his throwing, is there a sensory component to that? Does he like the feeling of actually throwing or um, the sound when he throws something or drops it? Or is it just a behavior that I've reinforced in some way? Or is it both? Is it just one? Is that something that you and I could really tease out and figure out? Yes, I think this is the start of the conversation towards collaboration between occupational therapy and behavior analysis and showing how we determine why a student is engaging in a certain behavior and not just assuming that it has a function. So without going into too much more detail there on this student, because he has a, you know, we have an intensive uh, analysis of why he engages in those behaviors. I'm excited that down the road we are going to go into a deeper dive on this topic of looking at function of behaviour and developing specific behavioural intervention to address these what I call barrier behaviours. Yes, they're definitely barrier behaviours, that's for sure, because I'm not getting anywhere in my session. So I too am looking forward to seeing how we can work together and figure this out. Great. So the last thing I wanted to mention, you know, we really have talked about several myths, but again, it's not an exhaustive list, but we will be unraveling more facets of myths and aspects as we go further on in our podcasting. Of course, if you have a pressing question, whether you had a collaborative or non-collaborative experience, we would love to hear from you. Please do share uh, your thoughts with us on our podcast Facebook group, the ABN OT podcast. And next week, we're going to jump into the ever so hot topic of, dare I say it, sensory versus behavior. I am going to have to take a nice long breath before we do that. We will go there for the greater good, of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so key takeaways from today, Aditi, is that the more time we spend learning about each other's perspectives, the less likely we are to hang on to those myths that we both have about each other's fields and to hang on to those notches, objectives that we've mentioned in the beginning of this episode. So the key takeaway is to ask questions and listen for answers and create a space for listening to what the other person brings to the perspective because already, Aditi, as I start to collaborate with both yourself and with Maya, I'm starting to add to the programming that I can make for my own children and to look deeper at what might be component skills that my children are lacking to make progress in the goals in which I'm working on. So I'm excited about where that collaboration is going to go. 
Yay! You know, I think we have committed to sharing our good, bad, and ugly experiences with each other in collaboration, and I do hope our audience does too. So subscribe to our podcast to access more of our IPC resources for you and your practice, Um, and in our show notes, you will have the icebreaker for OTs and ABAs, which I do think you might find helpful. So now I just want to take a mindful moment. I like to do this at the end of each episode because I think collaboration has to start with a space, creating a space to really think about what we're doing. So remember, the most valuable resource that you and I have as therapists is really each other. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspective. So I hope you go out there, start some conversations, start collaborating. Until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. Room from Dan under.